So I would like to request your attention for some thoughts. I plan to pretty much take up where uh, Bhikkhu Nalayo left off last night on hindrances. Um, you recall the two beautiful similes, one from the Mahasapura Sutta, where the freedom from hindrances is compared with uh, uh, freedom from debt, uh, freedom from uh, illness, uh, freedom from slavery, freedom from danger, and so on. And the other very beautiful image where um, the Brahman Sangharava comes to the Buddha and says, you know, how is it that on some days I don't remember the mantras I have very assiduously practiced I can't recall them. And on other days, I can even remember those I haven't really practiced that well, you know, and it works. Why is this the case? And then the Buddha tells them uh, the images Bhikkhu has spoken to you of, and you've seen the pots of water. The, from a psychological point of view, the, the practitioner is seeking to recognize his own face in the mirror image of water is a very powerful image, isn't it? We, we seek understanding of ourselves. And when we meet the different conditioned types of water, this understanding is uh, impaired. And we do not understand, as the sutta says, uh, our good or the good of others, or both ours and the good of others, you know, which is an interesting uh, listing. So I would uh, like to go to another image which comes from the Satipatthana Samyutta, uh, a text I would heartily recommend to you to read. Uh, unfortunately, a lot less famous than the Satipatthana Suttas, of which we have three in the Pali Canon, but in fact there are a lot of wonderful nuggets about Satipatthana to be found in the Samyutta Nikaya over a hundred of them. And uh, very early on in that Samyutta, we have one called the cook. And there are two cooks. Uh, uh, both are good cooks, but one is a foolish good cook, and the other one is a wise and skilled and competent good cook. And their uh, distinction is not that one prepares with bad ingredients. If one looks, the, the wording is exactly the same. Both of them are using uh, sumptuous uh, ingredients to prepare food for their king. But the good cook does pay notice what the king prefers. He does pay heed to how the king responds to his foods. He realizes what he takes a lot of, in what sequence he eats the foods, what he comments on, what seems to be pleased by, what seems to be, be becoming to him. And, and the bad cook, who tries his heart and uses the same good ingredients, the list goes through the classic uh, Satipatthana pattern, you know, Atapi Sampajano, uh, Satima, so... Wise, uh, you know, mindfully, com clearly comprehending, with with uh, with ardency, pursuing, uh, and so forth. But he does not pick up on the preference of the king. 
So that's the distinction. And then the analogy to it is the good and the bad meditator. The good meditator, and this is really disheartening if you read this, the, good, the, good medi- the bad meditator does exactly the same thing as the good meditator, save one little thing. He does not pay heed to how his mind responds. He does not pick up his mind's sign. Yeah? The word nimitta in one of its fascinating uses is, is, uh, comes to service there. So the difference between the good and the bad cook and the difference between the good and the bad meditator is not just that they play their tools right, it's not that they are dedicated, it's not that they are fastidious, but in fact the difference is that the good meditator actually takes into account how his or her mind responds to what he or she is doing. In other words, he or she engages in a conscious relationship with where what he or she does actually lands. Yeah? It's not enough to try hard, it's not enough to be heroic, to be dedicated, to be arduous. It's actually necessary that I find out what's happening over there, yeah? or what's happening in here. Um, after many years I've come to understand that sati basically is not, is, yes, it is a state, Yes, it is a trait, but beyond being a state or beyond being a trait, um, it is essentially a form of attuned attentional relationship to something, some process, some body, some state, uh, an internal or an external uh, interlocutor, if you want. So sati as an attuned attentional relationship. And as in every relationship, not one and the same thing is always appropriate. Yeah? There are moments for authentic speaking from the heart. There are moments for great reserve and holding back. There are moments for uh, cheekiness. Yeah? Uh, there are moments for careful inquiry. Uh, so uh, you all know relationships. So what our cook really needs to do is establish some kind of relationship to the preferences of his king. What a meditator needs to do is to establish some kind of relationship to the preferences of his own mind, to pick up the sign of his chitta. So let me give you the bad news. The bad news is that sati can intervene, but it cannot actually fix the hindrances. Um, the hindrances have to be fixed in your life. Satipatthana alone cannot fix these hindrances. Um, that's important. There is no promise that Sati is going to cure your anger. There is no promise that Sati alone uh, is going to uh, fix your desire. There is no promise that Sati alone is going to uh, uh, rout uh, ignorance. Sati is indispensable in this, but it needs a lot of friends. Uh, these friends are basically called emancipatory effort. Yeah? And that's an important point. Sometimes the psychological uh, world refers to sati as basically an observant, still quality that witnesses uh, our experience. And um, while this is true, uh, this is absolutely a quality of sati, the capacity to uh, establish witness consciousness, um, it, sati can do more. If we read the suttas, then actually we were uh, encouraged to see in sati a function that is capable of intervening, that is capable of not giving consent, that is 
capable of making uh, uh, discernments whether something is wholesome or unwholesome. Yeah? This is borne out in many similes, and I don't want to drag you in there tonight. Um, the important part for us when we look at the hindrances is that while in Chittanupasana we recognize the presence or absence of particular states which are either salubrious or detrimental to awakening, in the fourth of the contemplations, Dhammanupasana, we're looking at how these things come together. We're looking at the conditionality. The term Dhamma in Dhammanupasana has basically two, two meanings. Yeah, so one meaning which is utterly untranslatable, means it suggests <coughs> that we look at dynamics both of awakening, as in the awakening factors, and dynamics that hinder awakening, as in the hindrances, that are headings of how Buddhist psychology understands the nature of experience. That's where you get sequences like the Bochangas and sequences like the Nivaranas. One very useful, one very detrimental. So these categories of how Buddhist psychology thinks about reality are uh, one of the meanings of Dhammanupassana. So we have sets of Dhammas, which are more than objects, as Bhante uh, suggested last night. They are more than objects. We're speaking of pattern, we're speaking of processes, we're speaking of dynamics that are um, basically enchained in some ways that trigger whole processes. The other meaning of Dhamma is that uh, of f largely that of phenomena. So, so we have, uh, if you look at the Satipatthanas, we have uh, under the heading of the fourth of the Satipatthanas, we have basically the contents of mind. Well, we had under the third, the states, the color, the affective tone of mind. Under the fourth, we had the secondary meaning of Dhamma. We have the, the basic contents of mind, the stuff that takes place. Images, concepts, discursive activity, thoughts, memories, fantasies, such like. We are encouraged particularly to contemplate patterns that are, due, that are useful for awakening. That's where the other meaning of Dhamma comes in. Yeah. So, how does this look? Um, um, the hindrances affect us in very different ways. And um, there's a famous saying by a French biologist, Louis Pasteur, who said, um, when it comes to observation, nature favors the prepared mind. When it comes to observation, nature favors the prepared mind. This is a very smart little insight because it says, if I have no clue of anything, if something happens, I am very unlikely to pick up on it. If I have already some categories, some forms of discernment, I have a much better chance of noticing when it's there or when it's not there, when it takes place or when it's not taking place. So the first thing with the hindrances is we're actually acknowledging these hindrances as hindrances. In other words, they are universal. They're not my particular shortcoming. They're not proof of my congenital inability to practice meditation, as uh, sometimes it may feel. They are universal dynamics that crop up under certain circumstances, and it's worthy looking closely at those circumstances. The first <clears throat> is very clear. This is Kama Chanda. Desire 
specifically of the sensory, the, the sensuality. There are other forms of desire, just as a footnote. You know? If you look at tanha, we also have desire for things that may not be sensual. Bhava tanha, you know, things like power, control, fame, love, um, prestige. These were things that preoccupy many of our minds, and they're not sensual. So our desires cannot just focus on, on sensual stuff. Much of what keeps our societies and what keeps our psychologies going is desire for non-sensual things. Safety, for example, yeah? or reputation. Um, and we have another form of desire, the desire to get rid of things. All these, the second and the third type of desire are not mentioned in here. So here we're specifically speaking of sensual desire. Now let me say, of those five hindrances, three and a half have to do with thinking. Yeah? You have to be aware that when you meet these hindrances as a meditator, you know, with closed eyes, angelic facial expression, sitting cross-legged here, then these hindrances will raise their heads as thoughts. So if you think that you have a lot of thoughts, you know, after trying to put them aside for a while, you may actually begin to discern patterns and wonder why some of these thoughts keep coming back. There's a good chance that these things keep coming back because there's some desire involved. You know, not everything you desire, you actually know you desire. You, know. you may just feel, this just happens to me. You know. I don't actually do anything. Just everywhere I go, I just redecorate the rooms. You know. <laughs> and it takes some time to actually acknowledge that basically there's part of you who wants to do this, who gets some kick out of this. You know. If you remember, I spoke of these four steps of contemplation. Often when we do not acknowledge the gratification, the, the payoff of something, we complain about the disadvantage of something and you know, bring our hands and say we would like to let go of this and it keeps coming back and we're, in, we're innocent and we, you know, we're pleading ignorant about what we actually secretly get from a thing. So many of the things that we keep being haunted by are things that part of us seeks out, seeks gratification, wants to play with. You know? Just a last little fling with it. You know? Another little bite. You know? So sense desire does much of that. Now what does sense desire is? This is not just you know, the greedy bite impulse when you sink your little white choppers into a fresh hamburger, you know? if you're non-vegetarian. Sense desire comes also in the mind base. So things that you have enjoyed, things that are pleasant, that you have decided to repeat, yeah? that you want to just hold on a little longer. Let's th let me think through that one more time. Yeah? That was really delightful. Buddhist psychology calls this Nandi. Nandi is not just Shiva's bull, it's also delight. And the pursuit of delight is what uh, Buddhist teachings grimly state is what fills the charnel grounds. Yeah. The pursuit of delight as the source of happiness is what keeps the mind from stillness. Now remember, many of those things are morally perfectly blameless. There is nothing wrong with sitting here with closed eyes and redecorating the IMS shrine room. Yeah? There's, from a point of view of Sila, there's nothing to be said against. It doesn't cost anything, it's not abusive, it doesn't do anybody harm. It's fair, fair enough. In terms of ethics, that's fine. But in terms of samadhi, it's utterly detrimental. 
So many things that are inane, seemingly, or that are uh, ethically harmless are actually utterly detrimental in terms of mind unification, in terms of the capacity of this mind to integrate. So we need to be wary of them as meditators, because at the moment where we seek gratification through remembering pleasant things or fantasizing pleasant things, whatever they may be, of good taste or of bad taste, coarse or fine, every time we do this, we stop the mind from finding unification. That's why sense-desire is really detrimental to meditative pursuits. And it will come as thought, it will come as memory, it will come as concept, as fantasy. Whether you like to solve mathematical formula, write you know, multiple level mail merges in your head, uh, do pizza recipes, have sex fantasies, doesn't really matter much. Yeah. If you seek the gratification of using your mind at that moment in these things, then that will stop you from becoming unified in your samadhi. The second one, Vyapada, is exactly uh, the same. It, it's just the other side of the coin. Yeah. Much of our aversion, much of our ill will, much of our hatred is subliminal. It's not very loud. We don't go around murdering people. We've stopped publicly displaying acts of violence and so forth. But we kind of we, we use aversion to distinguish ourselves. French sociologist called Bourdieu spoke of the, the gain of distinction. And aversion is a wonderful tool to do exactly that. You know. We say somebody is greedy or somebody may, is so slow in the, in the line when we wait for the food or you know, she uses really a lot of space when she sits down. And we don't need to say that I am not like this. Just by being slightly worse how she is, I already harvest the gain of distinction. I become a very modest person, I become a very effective person, I take very little space, yeah? Just by contemptuously pointing to the fact of what she does, or second helping of salad, or, you know, by directing my aversion against things like that, I secretly and implicitly become a better person. I start taking the moral high ground. So much of our aversion does this little thing, it shores up our frail sense of self. It proffers up our, you know, fragile self-construct. Not for long, 20 minutes, you know, but 20 minutes of little superiority. I'm a really modest person here and, you know, I'm surrounded by all these greedy, hungry ghosts who just take all my salad. Yeah. <laughs> this would be an example of, uh, you know, the, the use of aversion to shore up your sense of self. Aversion is uh, really destructive when, it, when you try to find stillness in your mind, you know, just two, three drops of vinegar in your blood, and, you know, it is really destructive. It stops the mind from unifying. It's like cur it curdles. Yeah? And it again comes with thoughts. We will think about things that annoy us. We will think about things that... Um, are unpleasant to us, that uh, make us indignant, that we find unjust, irrational. Um, generally, it goes with the sense of I am right. This isn't correct. This is cheating or unfair or uh, it's not PC. There are many, many things that usually when I feel um, 
Uh, to my shame, I have to say, I'm still capable of anger. Generally, when I'm getting angry, it doesn't say, now, Akinjano, you're about to enter into the state called anger. Careful, careful, careful. It doesn't say that. It just says, I am right. Yeah? <laughs> but I'm right. You know? This is not true. This is not good. This is wrong. Something in me goes this. So if I listen to my mind, it doesn't tell me, now you're getting angry, Akinjano. No, no, no. It says... You know, I have all right to be that way. And here is something out there that needs fixing. Somebody that needs putting back in his or her box. Something, some little demon that needs to be taken out. Yeah. So when I experience the hindrance of Vyapada, it's usually about people. You're rarely angry with doors and, you know, bolts and nuts, things like that. Generally, it's people. Mostly it's people close to you. Um, it's the closeness of relationship that triggers most deeply our uh, patterns and our underlying and dormant uh, anusayas, our proclivities. So this is a challenge. As I said, you cannot fix this in meditation. The only thing is you cannot give it your consent. You can acknowledge what's happening and you can remove your attention you can stop feeding this process. You can stop trying to be right in this. The third one is not about thought. The third one, sloth and torpor, or I prefer actually lethargy and uh, stupor, uh, is... is the, the Pali term doesn't just mean sleepiness, it means also a type of numbness. You, you can be in, in Tinamida without actually being sleepy, just being numbed out, you know, stuporific. You know, some, some people go into a sort of stuporific mode in their meditation. This is not Sanya Vidaita Niroda, you know, this is just numbness. It's a highly unproductive state. So this uh, sleepiness has many, many reasons. Um, let me be specific and do some phenomenology on this one. Uh, the first is obvious, is fatigue. You know, it's very honest fatigue. You're tired. You may be physically tired, and then it's still possible to hold the mind awake, even though a physical body is a tough one. But uh, if your mind still is awake, it's possible to sit with a tired physical body. If the mind is tired out, it's a lot more difficult to cope with fatigue. This happens not just to bad meditators. In fact, I don't take any meditator serious whatsoever who hasn't struggled with that hindrance. To me, if you've never struggled with sleepiness, it just means you're still thinking too much. Just to be blunt with you. I, I say that also to comfort people who struggle with that, because the struggle with sleepiness is visible. We don't fall asleep all in one go. The first of our senses to fall asleep is our vestibulary system. You know, we lose the sense of balance. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> right, right. And there, there are many more original ways to do that than, than we were just demonstrated. You know, this, this is sort of aristocratic nodders. There's the kind of keel over the hip ones. This is sort of discreet, I'm just going into a sort of list, <laughs> and then lock. Yeah. There's many forms of this. If you 
if you hang around meditation centers and monasteries, you can see like that. The Thais have an interesting word. They call it muen, roll, roll in, kind of. So there's many ways this is visible and this is, uh, in some way, this is often, a shame is attached to struggling with that hindrance. Yeah, I come to this retreat and I want to wake up and what I do, I just kind of nod off, you know. I fall off my perch for the first couple of days. This is really unpleasant. So what we, def- what we develop is a, a defense. We try not to have it. And in some way, this is the worst that can happen to you. If you try not to have it, it means you deny the early warning signs. And when you can't deny those anymore, your options are dramatically limited. Yeah? So the first thing you want to do is to decriminalize feel, feeling sleepy, if you want to struggle with this. So you have to acknowledge f- how it feels in the body. Let me go, before I go into some more details on this, to some of the other reasons for sleepiness. Besides honorable fatigue, um, you may just arrive at the retreat from a very busy period in your life and your mind just goes into a compensatory mode. Yeah? So from being on the fast track, you know, something in your mind says, oh, this is safe here. I get food, nobody's hurting me, I can just um, recover. Yeah? And you just kind of go into recovery mode, you know? standby. So in a way, this is what happens to many people when they come on retreat. They suddenly go from fast-paced lifestyle to retreat schedule and then they wonder that their system goes into just recovery. It takes usually a moment to get out of and um, many people will know that. There are other reasons. So sometimes sleepiness is a cover for aversion because aversion is unpleasant as an experience. Sleepiness can just sugarcoat it a little bit. Yeah. It's kind of fluffy. You've got a kind of cotton uh, cover for it. It takes the edges off. And it's preferable for the mind to be sleepy and dozy and uh, you know, take refuge in the softness of a fuzzy mind state rather than be with your unbridled aversion, for example. Yeah? So sometimes our sleepiness is actually a cover for underlying aversion, underlying ill will, underlying not wanting to be here. That is particularly the case for willful people. Willful people are people who, uh, actually I would think most of you are willful, to be honest. Um, I would expect you not to turn up here if you're not a little bit willful. It's a still marginal pastime to give your holidays away to do meditation retreats. I would expect some determination, will, and so forth is involved. Now willful people have sometimes a tendency not to talk with their whole board. Yeah? They just make willful super-ego decisions. And then they come on retreat and when their uh, treasured super-ego has to let go, because you can't relax if super-ego is still sitting in the flight deck, uh, at that moment all the repressed uh, aspects, the ones who didn't get a word in, the ones who would have preferred a diving holiday in Florida rather than you know, <laughs> You know, those guys rear their head and say, okay, she can drag me into the meditation hall in the morning while it's still dark, but she can't make me meditate. Yeah? <laughs> and as, as soon as she lets go, I'll take over. Yeah? So the 
repressed or the non-negotiated aspects of your psyche suddenly rear their heads and be, turn into saboteurs. Yeah? And every time the willful part finally reaches control to find some samadhi, then all this other stuff comes up and says, yeah, she can't do that with me. I am really not happy with this. And I'm not, help- I'm not playing along. You know, I can't win, but she can't win either. <laughs> so, so we get this kind of thing. Sometimes it's even simpler. Sometimes it's just a lack of clarity in our meditative object. A lack of clarity. What am I actually doing? What is my task? Where, do I, wh- where is my anchor? How big is my anchor? What is my exercise? Plan A, what am I doing? Plan B, what am I doing when I find out I'm not doing what I have agreed with me? Yeah. So lack of clarity in this, just kind of a childlike hope. I just kind of sit here and pull up my blanket a little and hope my mind kind of goes to peacefulness without me having to do much, but secretly hankering back from my bed. You know? And then it doesn't take much. You know, your shoulders roll in a bit, your chest collapses a little bit, and your breathing gets a little flatter. And sooner or later, your longing is fulfilled. Just you're, sli- you're asleep, just not in your bed. Yeah? So this is quite possible. Sometimes we almost conjure up sleepiness just by the posture we adopt. Yeah? So you need to take care to have a good posture, to suggest to your body through uprightness and through alignment a state of awake wakefulness for your mind yeah you need to use your breath you need to be able to ascertain the level of energy in your systems how much is there how much is available what's not there yeah it's unlikely that you will be able to focus your mind on the tip of your nose if you're barely awake so to to attempt to kind of at the moment when your sati needs to be moved through the body when your body needs to come alive it's un, unrealistic to try to focus it into a tiny, tiny spot of your experience and try to fixate it there. Um, sometimes sleepiness comes in because we are... This is not safe. Yeah? Sometimes we are beyond our resources and our psyche has a, an emergency break. And every time we go close to a place where we can't handle because we may not feel that the situation is safe, or the teachers, or the teachings, uh, or there may be, um, maybe I only have very little time, and something in us decides, I'm just closing him down before he does any damage. You know? Before he goes any, any place where he kind of opens cans of worms he can't actually handle, or there is nobody here there to help him handle it, I just, I just put him to sleep before he does any, you know, any damage to himself. I would expect that to be the rarest of, of instances, but sometimes that happens. You know, There's ways you find out. You find out every time we begin meditation, you're bright awake, and you know, a short time after you're asleep, when somebody rings a bell, you're bright awake again. You think, what was that? You know, if that has happened a few times, you realize, I'm actually quite awake, safe when I'm trying to meditate. There's probably an indication that something happens there that has nothing to do with your meditation object. So you will, in the long run, need to investigate. In the short term, you will need to have effective intervention strategies. Rest assured, even somebody as proficient in meditation as Moggallana, 
uh, was in need of advice from the Buddha about sleepiness. There's a beautiful passage in the Anguttara, which I will not try to recall by heart right now, but uh, in a touching instance, there is the first account of ear acupuncture, acupressure. You know, Buddha tells Moggallana, who is you know, a formidable meditator, to massage his earlobes and to rub his limbs to, as one of the strategies. And the last strategy is to acknowledge you're actually tired, you go to bed, you lie mindfully on the right side. The next of the hindrances, Udaja Kukucha is restlessness, often with a strong bodily component and agitation, often with a strong mental component. That's half, in my books, half of this hindrance is mental. In other words, it comes as thoughts, and the other half is mostly physical. I wouldn't say it's exclusively physical. You, have, you can also have mental restlessness, but often restlessness in the body is kind of itching, pains, pinching, uh, kind of feeling ants are walking up, strange sensations, you know, your hip continues over to the right, or uh, weird things. And it seems like everything in your sensory realm tries to distract you from the decision to actually still your mind, usually with a strong appeal. Fix it, crack it, relax it, adjust it, smooth it, you know, we're always called to do something under the um, impact of restlessness. We're always, the appeal is always do something. Don't just sit here. Yeah? And once you start giving in to this, uh, the phenomenon is momentarily relieved and then it moves over to the other side. <laughs> and you can, you know, adjust 24 vertebrae and the lateral rib joints and various other bones and muscles. You have countless muscles which you can release, and, you know, if you want my advice, after many years of practice, try to get as comfortable as possible. Yes, remove all the folds and all the creases in your trousers, in your socks. Do by all means. And then try not to budge. Yeah. If you start budging, this is quite endless. Something quite endless in this. It's also infectious. Your neighbors would start sneezing and budging and fidgeting. You can get a whole room to fidget if a couple of guys start doing this. It's infectious. Yeah. So, great wisdom of the many years of practice. Get as comfortable as you can and stay put. Yeah. And consider the rest a hindrance rather than something that needs to be fixed. And no, you're not losing your leg if it falls asleep. It's not the cutting off of your blood circulation. You can sit for hours with your leg going numb, just to be clear. The worst that can happen is if you get up and you don't notice, you may fall. <laughs> it's your nerve, it's generally your sciatica nerve that is pinched and makes your leg go numb. You can do that for hours. It's not your blood circulation that is cut off. You don't develop gangrena for it. So don't worry about this. Make it as good, adjust your cushions, Generally, it's about the pressure in particular points in your um, ischians. And take the rest as a hindrance. Mental agitation is more tricky. Usually, this is about stuff that has happened in your life and that preoccupies you often with a sense of remorse or agitation. Things you feel are really bad and you feel are counter to your ethical values. Yeah? We have, a, we have a, an ethical sensibility sorry, sensitivity, and this sensitivity uh, sometimes is infringed on. Sometimes we don't notice when it happens, but we 
when we meditate, these things catch up with us. So we start feeling, you know, how as little boys we've tortured frogs or God knows what. Yeah, I'm sure we have. You've all lived long enough to feel bad about a few things you will have done, either by deeds of omission or by deeds of commission, um, and such things can catch up with us in uh, in forms that are agonizing. We can't get away from this. We keep rehearsing our shortcoming. We keep guilt-tripping about it. We keep agonizing about it. And maybe indeed this is something that wasn't good, and maybe indeed this is something that needs amends, or at least an apology, or at least an acknowledgement, or a symbolic gesture. But right now you're here, on this mat, on this cushion, on this course, and you can't do this. So right now, this is not just about an acknowledgement that something wasn't kosher in your life. It's, It's about... It has slightly punitive quality. You kind of make yourself miserable by rehearsing what you haven't done right. This is an important one. Psychologically, we have turned the type of self-torment of which the suttas speak as a kind of common spiritual practice in the days of the Buddha. This self-torment, we haven't stopped with this. We just have stopped with it as a public religious activity. We've turned it into a psychological, private, little punitive rituals. We spoil ourselves. Uh, we, the possibility of stillness. We ruin ourselves the capacity of appreciation. We can be quite harsh with parts of ourselves. So this self-mortification has taken a psychological twist in our days. And it's a private psychological twist. We don't go around as flagellation procession as they did, you know, in the medieval ages in Europe. Uh, People beating each other up and thinking this was good for them. We do that privately. We do that psychologically often. So this agitation of the mind can take this form. And it's important that you recognize the message and at the same time you also acknowledge that you can't actually fix this right here. You need to park this. The last of the hindrances, doubt. Uh, There it is important to to understand that doubt is an emotion. Doubt is a highly unpleasant state. It means I have a question about something I feel I should not have any questions. There are many things I have questions about which leave me absolutely cool. I don't know what I eat for breakfast tomorrow. This is not something that troubles me. I can live with that question. But there are questions I feel that shouldn't be questions. For many people, the sutta speak of doubt, you know, in the teachings, in the teacher, in the, uh, in the community. But I experience doubt in many people in my life. It's not so much the doubt where the Buddhism works. Most people doubt themselves. Most doubt I encounter in my life as a teacher and as a therapist is self-doubt. People think, yeah, Buddhism is great stuff. I'm just not cut out for it. Yeah? That's what people told Ajahn Chah when he came back from his wanderings and settled for his first monastery. They were, people loved his talks. And they said, very plausible, great talk. It's just too difficult. Yeah? In other words, yeah, we don't disagree. We're just not cut out for, your, for what you tell us to do. So doubt is 
an unpleasant state of the heart. And we try to cope with that unpleasantness by erecting cognitive structures. So we go through probability scenarios. We, we, we go through structures of thinking to make the doubt less probable. We try to calculate, we try to build scaffoldings of cognitive structure to cope with that doubt. But the truth is no emotion has ever been convinced by cognitive structures. Emotions are just so much stronger. If you know what an emotion does, particularly the big flooding emotions, and doubt is one of them, together with anger and anxiety, you know, the big flooding emotions, they just blow all your mental scaffoldings aside. So what can you do with that? You will need to find out what you gain by it. Sometimes by doubting we, we, we have advantages. We don't need to make a decision. We don't need to let go of something. We don't need to commit. Yeah. We need to investigate. Like all of these hindrances, like Bante said yesterday, uh, we need to investigate. The difference is the hindrances, uh, the awakening factors tomorrow are things we need to find out how they work. And that takes some type of investigation. It takes some type of effort. It takes definitely sati, but it also takes a type of curiosity, a probing, a courage, and a, a realistic skill of relating to something. Let me read you to end a very beautiful little passage. It's also from the Anguttara, the Naga Sutta. Um, it's one of the few places where it speaks about this. Abandoning covetousness with regard, with regard to the world, he dwells with an awareness devoid of covetousness. He cleanses his mind of covetousness. Abandoning ill will and anger, she dwells with an awareness devoid of ill will, sympathetic with the welfare of all living beings. She cleanses her mind of ill will and anger. Abandoning sloth and drowsiness, she dwells with an awareness devoid of sloth and drowsiness, mindful, alert, percipient of light. She cleanses his, her mind of sloth and drowsiness. Abandoning restlessness and anxiety, he dwells undisturbed, his mind inwardly stilled. He cleanses his mind of restlessness and, and anxiety. Abandoning uncertainty, she dwells having crossed over uncertainty with no perplexity with regard to skillful mental qualities. She cleanses her mind of uncertainty. Having abandoned these five hindrances, corruptions of awareness that weaken discernment, then, quite withdrawn from sensual pleasures, withdrawn from unskillful qualities, he or she enters and remains in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. And so forth. A few more jhanas to come. This is what is called blinding Mara, going to a place of the trackless, where Mara doesn't find you anymore, at least temporarily. So, remember... Recognizing these hindrances is your best ally in this. Once you have recognized as a hindrance, a hindrance as a hindrance, it has blown its cover. Yeah? From then on, with some skill, with some inquiry, with some practice, this hindrance will not be able to haunt you any longer because you have recognized it as a hindrance rather than as a personal fault or a curse or a universal given. Good. Thank you for your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.